inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training, equestrian sports, and building a better connection with your horse. It's time for Ride On with Julie Goodnight. Back at my ranch, there's actually been quite a lot going on. You know, I was gone a lot of the summer on my boating trip, had a great time, came back, was only home for a week or so before uh, leaving for Ireland with my dear friend and assistant trainer, T. Cody, and a little bit more on that later in the show. I got back from Ireland and just wanted to spend some time getting reacquainted with my horse. Uh, that was uh, super pleasurable for me. I just spent a lot of time grooming her and hanging out with her and riding her, trying to get her back into riding shape. You know, many of you have been involved with or following our Horse Goals or Bust program that we've been working on over the last nine months. We've been winding that down, and we're still hearing from a lot of you about the goals you met or the roadblocks you encountered or the reformulated goals you're making. And we're putting together sort of a special edition uh, to talk about all the really cool stories we had um, from that campaign. So I really appreciate hearing from everybody. And uh, it's not too late. So if you if you joined us on the Horse Goals or Bus and you'd like to share your accomplishments or your story with us, we'd love to hear about it. And we're, we're working on putting all that together. For me, many of you know, my number one goal this year for horses was to breed my lovely little mare, Annie, to a stallion of my dreams, which is that he's a cat of Quarter Horse Stallion standing at the Four Sixes Ranch in Texas. Went through a lot of machinations and with a, a very expensive uh, machinations, I might add, and kind of ended with a heartbreak that she was briefly pregnant for a few weeks and then she wasn't. Uh, so many of you have been following that story because I've receives your messages, your comments in person, and, and all of that's been great. And I, I just, you know, kind of processed through all that this summer and I, I'm fine with it. So then here's what happens yesterday. The vet comes, um, she's here to check up on a couple of horses, uh, one of Mel's horses and one of Twyla's horses that are just getting some kind of maintenance that work done. And I went out to the barn to say hello to the vet and I started teasing her about, you know, I all the money I spent on my horse and I got nothing but a fat mare to show for it. And now she's stocking up when I ride her. And I, I don't know, I was just kind of joking around with her. And she said, you know, why don't we just recheck her? So Mel runs out to the pasture, brings Annie in and the vet tranquilizes her and then palpates her and then ultrasounds her. And lo and behold, there is a big healthy foal in there. I hope it's not too big. I'm shooting for small. 
but we looked at the ultrasounds, saw a beautiful heartbeat, saw the rib cage, we saw we could see the head. So after all that um, angst and planning and what was I going to do, I was actually starting to look at brood mares for sale. Um, then come to find out my little mare's pregnant after all. So woohoo, it was quite a celebration. And I'm still a little bit in shock and still kind of now having to go back to plan A after formulating plan B, plan C, and plan D. And so anyway, that's, that's the excitement around here. We are sort of rebooting our plans, putting her, taking her off the diet, putting her back on the good stuff in the hay department and um, really thinking ahead to to what's going to change around here next year. So that's super, super excited. I've got a super busy fall coming up ahead of me. I'm headed to the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby, Colorado for my ranch riding retreat. I'll be home for a week before going back for the five-day horsemanship immersion clinic that runs from October 17th to 22nd. That program still has a few openings in it. So if you go to SeaLazyU.com right now, find out more um, or call the ranch and you can find out more and reserve a spot in this luxurious, all-inclusive retreat, which is nestled in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. My last two events of the year are the CHA International Conference. That's in Fort Collins this year, October 26th to 28th. I'll also be teaching classes up there that week, so I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, finally in November, I head to Equine Affair in Massachusetts, the big granddaddy show of them all. I'm super excited to be going back there for the first time since pre-pandemic days. So that's very, very exciting. Just head to juliegoodnight.com slash events to get more information on all of my upcoming events. And be the first to know when new ones are added when you sign up for my weekly newsletter at juliegoodnight.com slash news. You'll also get brand new training articles and podcast episodes as soon as they're released, exclusive deals and updates from me. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Julie Goodnight. Last week, I had the honor of hosting Dr. Kate Fenner, a renowned equine behaviorist and a published researcher from Australia. She was here at my ranch in Colorado for a week, and we were recording an educational series all about the canner. More on that later. It's going to be a great series, but it'll be some time before that comes out. But while Dr. Fenner was here, I just couldn't let this opportunity go by, so I asked her to be a guest on the podcast. Join us for this episode as we talk about a three-year-old colt that's been overwhelmed with early training and has just basically shut down as a result. I'll also ask Dr. Finner about her research into different training methods, and we'll have a fascinating discussion about how horses learn. And in the What the Hey Q&A segment, my dear friend and assistant trainer, T. Cody, will join me with a question of her own about a bucking horse, and I'll also answer a question from listeners about a riding horse that unexpectedly lays down and rolls, apparently whenever he wants. So now let's get started on the main topic. Dr. Kate Finner is an equine scientist in the areas of horse training, behavior, 
and equine welfare at the University of Queensland, and a researcher with a PhD in horse behavior and training from the Sydney School of Veterinary Science and the University of Sydney. She's certified in equestrian coaching and horse training and has experience training, competing, and judging in dressage, show jumping, western, working equitation, hacking, polo, and much more. After years of experience starting horses for clients, Dr. Finner feels strongly that owners are best served by learning to train their own horses. So she founded Can Do Equine and has developed a series of ethical, easy to follow, step-by-step guides that are suitable for horses and riders of all levels. Dr. Finner, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And she actually means here at my ranch in Salida, Colorado, up in the mountains. She came in just a few days ago, all the way from Australia. We've been working on doing some videos together and some teaching projects. So she's here in my little recording studio. It's great to have you here all the way from Australia. Thank you. Yeah, really fun to be here. So tell us a little bit about your horse background and maybe some of the research you've been involved with. Mm, Okay. Um, like a lot of us, I started riding very young. I actually went off to boarding school at 10 with my one of my father's off-the-track horses. And um, I just sort of was a pretty casual rider up until I moved overseas. And then when I was competing, I got quite serious when I lived in Singapore and I was playing a lot of polo and doing show jumping and mostly dressage. And I was competing in a Rolex International one day. And I'll tell you, I was holding my horse so tight like I felt like I was holding the horse together completely and the horse felt really really tense and I knew if I let the horse go that it would just leave the arena and at the end of that particular test which I won which I think is quite scary considering the state my horse was in the judge said at the end of the test you know in those collective marks the horse looks beautiful on the inside on the outside but I fear ready to explode on the inside Mm. and she absolutely had it and so at that moment I decided I've got to find a better way of doing it. Got to be a better way. It's it's not working for me, it's not working for the horse. So I moved from Singapore to the States and I was here for a couple of years and um, trained with somebody for a year in Colorado which was great. I then moved back to the UK which is where I was living at the time and I started taking horses in for training and that was wonderful because I could make great changes in these horses and I was really happy about that. But then I'd send the horses back to the owners and within a week, a month, six months, the horses were reverting to the old behaviors or they were losing the behaviors that I'd taught. And I just began to think this is not right. This, this is not about the horses. It's much more about the riders. And so I then moved back to Australia and I decided that I needed to actually stop doing that and just teach people to train their own horses. And so I then became very interested in how the horse learns and um, why the horses behave in the way that they do. And so I went and studied equine science at Charles Sturt University in Australia. And from there, I met a fellow called Paul McGreevy and um, I decided I'd do a PhD with him. And I went straight into that afterwards. And that sort of focused on a project that hopefully we can talk about a bit later called eBark, which is the Equine Behaviour Assessment and Research Questionnaire. And we developed that questionnaire during my PhD. And it really is a way for everyday horse owners to monitor 
and benchmark their horses' behavior and training. And the idea of that as a citizen science project is to get a body of information that's going to help us better match horses and riders and really improve rider safety and horse welfare in the long run. Yes, absolutely. Of course, our paths have crossed a few different ways, but when I first heard about eBARG, I just went right away and filled out the survey. And it's very in-depth and it's fun to answer. It's self-explanatory. And I love the way the questions are posed. They're just objective and they take away all the judgment on the horse or the person. And uh, so it's fun. And uh, we'll get we'll get into a little bit more of that later in terms of how people can find out more about that. But let's talk a little bit more about, you know, I think that it's so nice that research has come a long way and people are starting to ask questions. And focus on equine welfare has been a really big part of what has motivated people to try to find a better way to do things. Yes. And to use science-based information to understand better ways of training. So we definitely want to talk about that now one of the subjects I want to talk to you about today, recently a horse owner reached out to me asking for guidance about a three-year-old colt that came to her in a traumatized state. And I want to ask your opinion about that. But first, I want to tell you about a horse that kind of reminded me of. And this was about 30 years ago when I was first starting out in business for myself. And one day, these people, they had, you know, called me ahead of time, made arrangements and all that. And they showed up with this horse. And it was a pretty grayed looking horse. It was not distinguishable in any way, not very well built, not a very bright expression on its face. Right. It might not be a super happy golden retriever type <laughs> of horse. She just, you know, sort of a range bred right. horse from New Mexico. I remember it was a filly, and I believe she was three years old. So certainly old enough to start training, but she had, she really was just barely halter broke. And I, you know, spent a week or so just handling her and grooming her and doing her feet and all that. And the day came to start putting a saddle on her. And, uh, you know, I was kind of young and just liked to kind of get the job done. So my idea was just pretty much throw the saddle up there and, you know, I tighten the cinch slowly, but um, then walk around a little bit, let them get used to it. So I put this little lightweight Western saddle up on the horse, and she's tied up at the hitching rail. That was the first and biggest lesson <laughs> I learned. And I uh, put throw that saddle on, and I just slowly tighten up the cinch. It wasn't it wasn't tight, just enough to safely hold the saddle on, and. As soon as I stepped away, she she just kind of grunted and just threw herself on the ground. Oh, wow. Now, she's tied up, but she was tied up with the just the right amount of slack where, you know, her nose wasn't quite on the ground. But her <laughs> whole body, she was fully laid down, and she was stiff and, like, groaning. Oh. And I untied her. Uh, you know, thank God for the quick release knot. I untied her and I started, you know, shaking the rope and hollered at her screaming, get up, you know, poking her. And she was just like frozen mm. on the ground grunting. So 
then she wasn't really groaning and grunting. She just kind of did that at first, but she was kind of stiff and just laying there like shocky. So I didn't know what to do and she wouldn't get up. I tried pulling her head around. Um, I, I think I even undid the saddle and then finally I could, I couldn't think of anything to do to get her up. So I pinched her nose closed. Oh, so she couldn't breathe. And then she scrambled to her feet. And then she was like, fine. And then um, I didn't saddle her again. I went and did some stuff with her. She was just perfectly normal. And then the next day, I saddled her, and she did the same thing. She put herself on the ground. I walked immediately to her nose. She jumped right up. I mean, as soon as I reached for her nose, she jumped up. And that was the last time she ever did it. Now, why it occurred to her to respond in that manner to the saddle being put on her, I didn't take time to introduce a saddle. I just put it on her. So that was my bad. Yeah. And the I suppose the first time she did it, if you really believe that was the first time she did it, um, and she they hadn't tried to perhaps saddle well, her. See, there's the thing, isn't it? Isn't it? And it's the ultimate freeze response, isn't it? That's how I took it. I don't think this horse had been messed with. It literally had been raised out on the range, mm-hmm. and and she was a young horse. And anyway, in every horse you train, there's a lesson. And so this horse recently that uh, we got uh, a message about on social media, and so I wrote about it in the blog, but I wanted to get your take on this situation. So uh, again, this is from a horse owner reaching out to me to ask for guidance about a three-year-old colt that came to her in a traumatized state. Quote, his eyes glaze over and he statues up in response to any cues as a result of being just pushed through everything and into riding. What do you think about that? I think it's a sadly very common problem for young horses um, that have been just bullied through the foundation training and they haven't had the opportunity to have it properly explained to them. So they've never actually got any of the lessons. And this is one of the things that, you know, you find with horses that are are sent out to a trainer, for example, and you say, oh, you've got six weeks, you can start the horse under saddle. And then I expect it to be able to, you know, come back to me, walk trot and canter around in the paddock, you know, all by itself. And not every horse is capable of taking on that amount of information in that space of time. And so as this person says, you know, you, you can get horses that are extremely traumatized. And I think horses have different personalities, different breeds have different personalities. And so some horses might be more able to take on training at that level, at that pace, and other horses are going to be ill-equipped to do so. And so they're going to end up in a state like this. Here's a horse that is so traumatized and so anxious. So it's it's given up on the fight response. The flight, of course, response is going to be its first response always. Um, it doesn't feel it can do that. So it, it's, um, it's not going to fight. It's not going to fly. It's got one thing left, which is freeze. The problem with freeze is that it, it has to stop. Like it's not a permanent solution like flight. Um, flight will get them out of the situation. Freeze, they're still there. So unless the the thing that's scaring them leaves, they've got to get out of that situation. That can be very dangerous. That's when they explode and that's when that puts the handlers in danger. And once the handler's in danger, the horse's welfare is further at risk because now the horse is a dangerous horse. 
So the horse has gone from um, a horse that's anxious, confused, probably frustrated, to a, you know, from a horse that is lacking foundation training, which is easily fixed, to a horse that's now labelled dangerous. And now that's when the horse starts to get sent to various different trainers and it ends His up. future is at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and people's safety, human safety is at risk as well. And it's all avoidable. Now, I wanted to ask you along those lines, like I said, I started training horses 30 years ago. And when you're first starting out, you, you start a lot of young horses because that's really what people need the help with most. And that and quote unquote problem horses that, you know, generally are, they've already been screwed up basically <laughs> and you're fixing it. But I, when I first started training for myself, people would routinely send two and three year olds for training. And I started noticing a huge difference between a two year old and a three year old. And then there's a big difference to me as well between a three year old and a four year old. So when you're talking about a horse being ill-prepared, how much does the horse's actual maturity weigh into that preparedness? There's a, there's a lot of things involved in that, isn't there? And I think we've been very influenced by the thoroughbred industry. Um, they want to get on those horses, um, you know, and have them racing it too. So you, you've got to be riding them at one and a half. Um, but we know their growth plates don't close till they're five. So to, you can't realistically say that's okay and it won't damage the horse because they haven't stopped growing. So there's, Because we know it damages the horse. Yeah, we know it does. We know it does. So, um, you know, and the, the various people will tell you that, you know, quarter horses, you can start earlier, they develop more, you know, sooner and things. But we also know that none of that's true. So, so we actually know. We have all this information. I think you can start doing great groundwork exercises with your horses, build up. I especially like to build up the top line muscles. So I teach the horse to travel in the correct frame when it's young, you know, from a two year and a half year old and something like that. And I'm building up all those top line muscles. So when it comes time to sit on the horse, the horse understands frame and posture and it's got the condition to carry me. Is this another thing you'll find? You know, you send a horse out to a trainer and they say, oh, I'll ride it for an hour a day. And I'm like, Mm. What in a saddle that fits and um, a horse that has no top line that mm. is going to cause pain mm -hmm. to, to start. The other thing I find with starting young horses is if you can give them a little bit more time, they're emotionally much more mature, and that's always much easier I find to deal with in the, with the starting under saddle process if you've got a horse that's a little bit more mature. That's what I found. It's that. Different horses are going to be completely different in this regard. Some horses as a two-year-old are so bright and inquisitive that they have fun learning. And uh, my horse Pepperoni was like that. And and he also would learn so wickedly fast <laughs> that I realized if I could just like teach him one thing a day, not do a lot else with him, but just one new thing. And if I did it right, and I, and I never made mistakes, which is, of course is impossible, I made mistakes and he would always point them out to me when I did. And if I just did that and then not drill him, drill him, drill him, drill him, drill. So I kind of did that, but I would just ride him, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And I just think, okay, what's the next little thing? And if he'd get it, he'd be like, okay, we're done here. But the 
two-year-old that was learning pretty well, but you we went just a little bit too long and all of a sudden they're starting to feel dull and just seems like their mind's starting to get oggy and they get heavier and you realize, oh, I've worked this horse too long. But that same horse coming back as a three-year-old, I don't really experience that. Yeah, much more able to concentrate. And I think that, you know, getting back to that issue that when horses are pushes, take that two-year-old that was starting to shut down. If you continue along that path, the horse learns the only way to escape is to shut down. And so they go into learned helplessness because it, it keeps them safe and they have no, no other means of um, escaping from the pressure. So it really is kind of like a shutting down of the emotionality or uh, tell us, like, how, how, how does a scientist define learned helplessness and what are the common ways you see that when you look at horses being ridden? So it, it sort of presents in horses as completely unresponsive. So they, they respond correctly, but they have no sort of personality or they're just quite robotic. So people describe them as, you know, my horse is very dull and that probably you've been drilling it to do certain things. So... You know, learned helplessness, we've shown it in people, we've shown it in dogs. We haven't, you know, really, really defined it uh, very well in horses yet. Of course, everything is less researched in horses, it seems like. But give me some typical descriptions of, of that. I think you find it quite often in riding school horses that are subjected to really poor signals and response, like the pressure release from a beginner rider is non-existent. So the horse learns to trot around the arena by being kicked every stride, for example, um, being yanked in the mouth all the time. Every time the rider rises to the trot, does so by leaning on the mouth. And these horses know there's no escape from that. They're going to have to go around, around the arena. They're going to have to put up with whatever happens. And, and that is learned helplessness. I always said, God bless the dude horses because they have the hardest job of all horses in kind of the beginner lesson yeah. horse. It is the same thing, but without them, none of us would be here. So <laughs> what about, do we see it in high level performance horses? Ooh. You know, I picture a high level dressage horse that's being ridden heavy handed versus one that's light and a little more relaxed and actually seems to be trying to, to be the best performer like a ballet dancer is trying to be the best dancer. And you see these other horses that seem to be really tight, their eyes are, you know, kind of popping out of their heads and their mouths are strapped shut. And they're doing the same movements and they're actually getting seemingly the same scores. Yeah, or better. Um, and it's interesting because what we're doing is we're depriving the horse of its natural movements. So we're, we're preventing the horse from behaving naturally. So that horse that you described that was actually not being held together and had a much freer action looks much more beautiful to a trained eye. But if you put the more robotic horse onto a Facebook post, everyone's going, oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. But what have we done to that horse? Well, We've strapped its mouth closed to prevent all those oral behaviors that we don't want. So if we put too much pressure on the reins, the horse is going to try and open its mouth and stick its tongue out. So we strap it close so it can't do that, which means we can put even more pressure on the reins 
which is going to tighten that nose band even further. I've done quite a bit of work with rain tension devices. So there we look at, we, it's a little device that goes between the end of the rain and the bit, and you can measure how much tension the, the reins that the rider is holding. And, and that's quite interesting. Um, but when I remember there was a study some years ago, they were, the, the devices are quite, you know, precious, like they're, they're small devices. And if you think about how you and I might ride, it's not a huge amount of pressure. You know, we can measure that in a couple of kilograms, probably most of the time. And I think these devices went up something like 45 kilograms, but the dressage riders were breaking them. Mm. Yeah. So you got that I was going to ask you if you knew what uh, what the uh, how much weight would be in the hands of a heavy contact rider because I've just always been curious about that. I talk frequently about this subject of how much contact is contact and how much is required, mm -hmm. and you know the horse learns to balance on however amount of pressure you're pulling back on the reins. And I say, you know, is it an ounce or is it a pound or is it 10 pounds? But we don't know because they're breaking the device. Well, yeah, we, we don't know. And also it's very hard to convince um, high-level dressage riders to let you do those sorts of experiments. Mm -hmm. um, they're, you know, already reluctant to have their nose bend tightness tested. So it, it is difficult. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, you guys are involved in some research on the physical effects of strapping the mouth shut? Yeah, so in 2016, we, Paul McGreevy and I and the team did some work with some horses that were naive to noseband. So we had to find some horses that would have been easy in this country. It wasn't so easy in Australia um, to find horses that had never worn a noseband. And we found horses that were naive to nosebands and double bridles. And the, the experiment looked a bit like this. We had 12 horses. We had a sort of crush area. We put the horse in the crush. So there was no exercise involved. There were no reins on the bridles. We had the horse in the crush area for 10 minutes and we took... Um, Could you say what a crush... Um, like a veterinary crush where you have the horse... Oh, it's like stocks or... Stocks, thank okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the horse in there for 10 minutes where we took baseline readings. So we did heart rate, heart rate variability, eye temperature, because there's a really good measure of stress. Um and then we did all the oral behaviors. So yawning, opening his mouth, licking, swallowing. So that 10 minutes. And then we had the nose band. Then we put the bridle on the horse. Actually, we had the bridle on the horse during that, the baseline measurements. Then we did the nose band up to one of four different measurements. The first measurement was it wasn't done up at all. The second measurement was what we call conventionally fitted. Now, conventionally fitted means you can fit two fingers under the nose band on the nasal plane, not at the side of the mouth or at the back or anywhere else, in the middle of the nose, your two fingers. That's conventional. Then we did it so that it was just loose enough to fit just one finger but not two. And finally, the final on the final day, the horses had it fitted so that you couldn't fit your finger under there. It was just tight enough so that you couldn't slide your finger under. What we found was... We found no differences between the first two settings. So it didn't make any difference if your horse didn't have it done up at all or conventionally fitted. So that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Just watching the experiment, because I was doing the videoing 
and I was watching the experiment and I said to the young vet science student that was also with me, I said, this is terribly boring. I mean, I can't see anything. We're not going to find any changes in these horses. I said, this is so dull. And, um, and then I went and downloaded the data. And honestly, the heart rates was heartbreaking because they went from normal heart rate, so, you know, 33 up to 100. These horses were standing there. They had no rain tension. They had nothing. These heart rates were really, really peaking. Just the strap. Yeah, just doing that nose band up for 10 minutes, and then they were coming down again as soon as the nose band was loosened, mm. particularly in that no space under the nose band. That was where it was particularly mm. bad. Uh, it's got to be painful. It's got to be painful, yeah. right? But... It's very hard to see the responses. It's very hard to see a horse in pain because horses hardwired not to show pain because they're prey animals and it makes them very vulnerable in the wild. So, you know, when we can't see a response, it doesn't mean the horse isn't having a response. So, yes, the heart rates really went up. The eye temperature really went up. These are all really significant results. The other things that we found that you couldn't really see because you don't really notice these things the horses pretty much almost stopped swallowing when the nose bands were tight. Sure. Um, they they didn't open their mouths because they couldn't. Well, they couldn't easily. Um, so they didn't lick and chew. But when we took them off, it had this post-inhibitory rebound effect of yawning and opening mm. their mouths. And it was quite incredible, particularly on those tight ones. They were yawning like mad because suddenly... <gasps> oh, I can open my mouth. We mm. call that a post-inhibitory rebound effect and we find it. It's the same as if you lock your horse in the stable for a week or something then let it out in the paddock. We let it out and the horse goes running around and bucking and carrying on. We think, oh, look at that horse, happy horse, how lovely. <laughs> no, it's not. It's having this post-inhibitory rebound effect because it's been prevented from behaving in a natural way. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. But what we heard back after that from the dressage folk in particular, because it was at that time still, we thought it was the dressage people that were having the tight nose bands with Sinsulin. It's more the eventers, but it, it's mm. across the board. Mm -hmm. But um, was they, they very much came back and said, oh, my horse has habituated to having a tight nose band. My horse doesn't care. And how do you know that? And you know that because your horse doesn't, doesn't tell you, hey, excuse me, this nose band. Did you measure the eyeball temperature? <laughs> yeah, so I think we need to, I like the way science is coming along. We're, we're finally trying to work out what's going on inside the horse because, you know, horses keep secrets very well. It reminds me of the thing that's always, I grew up riding jumping horses and I've been around them a lot and I've seen a lot. And um, you always encounter people that say, oh, my horse loves to jump. <laughs> And so I started early on in my career when somebody says, I'm still today, I say, really, what makes you think he loves it? While when we're jumping, he just sees that jump in front of him and he runs full speed at it. So it's this, you know, sort of amazing capacity humans have to anthropomorphize and, and just make it be the way you want it to be. Yeah. But just this last little discussion about this research, I can think of so many questions. In fact, I've written down some things I want to look more into or or talk more with you about. And um, we'll we'll have to plan on another episode where we can get into some other interesting areas. 
we talked about learned helplessness already. I wanted to just touch on learning theory. It's such a big part of what you do, and it's such a big part of a lot of this fantastic behavioral research and, and research into, into effective and ethical training techniques. So can you give us kind of the, uh, the long and the short of learning theory as it applies to horses? Yeah, yeah. Horses and every everybody else learn in two different ways. There's classical conditioning, which is where you put an unrelated stimulus to a response. So the typical one we all think of is Pavlov's dog. And what that scientist worked out was if he rang a bell just before he fed his dogs, the dogs then associated the bell with food so he could ring the bell and they'd start to salivate whether or not they got food. And that's a classically conditioned response. And we do it all the time with horses. You know, we ask them to come, we call them in the paddock and they come to us and we might give them a treat then or something. And we're classically conditioning that response. The other way, and with horse training, what we're usually using is what we call operant conditioning. And that you can remember the difference because operant conditioning has an operator. So we're the operator. Um, Now, operant conditioning is divided into four quadrants. So we've got the positive things and the negative things. We could also say we've got the things we add and the things we take away. People look at negative and they think it's bad. So I don't really like to talk about negative, but we've got things we can add and things we can take away. Maths is a much less sort of offensive way of discussing (laughs) it. So we'll talk about addition and subtraction. And then we've got reinforcement and punishment. Punishment is the same as correction. We have positive and negative reinforcement. So let's think of some examples of positive reinforcement, things we could use to positively reinforce something in the horse. So we might Cookie, cookies. That's the first thing that comes to people's mind. And when you mention positive reinforcement, everybody thinks food. But there's lots of other ways that we can use positive reinforcement and that we do every day when we're with our horse. So we could scratch the horse on the wither. Yeah. So it's a reward. We something if we look at positive reinforcement, we have to add it because it's positive. And reinforcement means we want the behavior to happen more in the future. So we're saying, oh, that's a good behavior. So we're adding something. So we could add the food. We could add a scratch. We could add we could add a rest. I always like that. Stand in the shade, Annie. Um, mm. We could add a stroke. We could add a kind word. Okay, all those sorts of things we can add. So that's positive reinforcement, trying to make a behavior more likely to happen in the future. Negative reinforcement is the same as pressure release. So it means exactly the same thing. And again, it's reinforcement. So we're trying to make that behavior more likely to happen in the future. But with negative reinforcement, we're taking something away. So the classic example here is if you want your horse to go faster, you put your leg on. When the horse goes faster, you remove the leg. If you um, want the horse to go faster, perhaps, again, you might use your voice. So you might cluck at the horse to trot. And that's pressure. The clucking, the noise is pressure for the horse. As soon as the horse trots, you stop clucking. So negative reinforcement, again, trying to make the behavior more likely to happen in the future. What the horse learns is that if it trots when it hears the cluck, the cluck stops when it trots. If you continue to cluck after the horse trots, it's no longer negative reinforcement. Because now we're adding something, that's the cluck. Um, So it's becoming positive, but it's no longer reinforcement because we don't want the horse 
to do it. So it's going to be, it's turning into punishment. So we know something's punishment if we're trying to stop a behavior from happening in the future. So if we're using positive punishment, we add something. So the horse kicks me, I kick it back. Uh, the horse throws its head in the air. And that, by the way, never goes well. <laughs> really stupid idea. This is why this punishment doesn't work so well with horses. This is no, why we really not. want to try and stay in that combined reinforcement, positive and negative reinforcement together. We want to stay in, in that area. So positive punishment, we're adding things. So you add your voice, you growl at the horse. It's all forms of correction. Negative punishment is something that's not often used in horse training thankfully, but it is, you know, from time to time, we have to take something away. It's negative. So taking away the horse's friend, tie the horse to the tree of knowledge or something like that. That's, um, so putting the horse in solitary confinement is negative punishment. Um, we might take the horse's food away. We might take its company away. We might take its water away. All these things are done. All these things are done. And there's a real problem with that because we're assuming that the horse knows what it did wrong and that the horse can conceptualize that sort of idea of, oh, if I do that, then I get tied to the tree for an hour and a half. And it's most unlikely the horse can understand that. Um, so we, we want to stay in that reinforcement area. We want to use combined reinforcement. It's actually almost impossible to use just positive reinforcement or just negative reinforcement. We always use what I call combined reinforcement. Mm -hmm. The negative reinforcement, the pressure release part of the equation gives the horse directions. So if I want to teach the horse to do a flying change, for example, I'm going to use combined reinforcement. I'm going to use my legs and seat to tell the horse where I want to put its body. And I'm going to release that pressure when I get the flying change. And then I'm going to reward the horse by scratching it on the wither just after the flying change. So that's combined. So I'm using the negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement comes out later to mark that behavior that I wanted. If I'm only using positive reinforcement to teach the flying change, I'm going to have a hard time because I can't actually ride the horse without using negative reinforcement because I'm sitting on the horse and I'm going to use my legs. So I'd have to take the horse to the arena, but I'd have to convince the horse to get to the arena because <laughs> I can't lead the horse or put a head collar on it unless I use negative reinforcement. And then if I did get it to the arena, I'd have to just wait until wait it did until a flying did change. Wait until it did a flying randomly just I performed a flying lead change. Give it that cookie you've been keeping <laughs> and, and we'd all be good. So we get scared of that word negative reinforcement, which is why I try and just say pressure release or just say combined reinforcement. And honestly, I'd be willing to wager that the term pressure release, pressure release, or check and release, sometimes we say about stopping a horse, goes back in time way farther than the term negative reinforcement. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it'd be very difficult. And it's fun listening to you describe all these things. And, and all of this, these are science-based theories that are very clear, objective, kind of apply to all animals, right? Mm. Humans included. Humans included. And you reminded me when you were talking in the beginning about classical conditioning versus operant conditioning and then positive reinforcement. And people are sometimes surprised that we, we never use a food-based reward in training. I just don't find it necessary. And I, I deal a lot with uh, 
the problems that result from uh, doing that wrong. But when I was first training horses and getting a lot of untrained horses, and some of them would be like two, three, four-year-old horses that hadn't really been handled at all. They were very skittish, very shy. So I used actually classical conditioning to help me enhance the positive reinforcement. So I would get a little pan full of oats or whatever feed I had, grain, and I would hold it, let the horse eat it, while I'd whisper this sweet nothing into its ear. And I have a little way I, you know, whisper a sweet nothing to a horse. So uh, while she was eating the grain, I was holding, so I was right there close. I'd just go, that's a good girl, that's a good girl, that's a good girl. And then I'd start scratching on the withers when I held the pan. That's a good girl, and I'm scratching on the withers. That's a good girl. And so she's associating that great feeling she had. That's the classical conditioning yeah. of it. And when I was actively training, uh, once you're you know, up there training, doing groundwork or riding a horse, that food-based reward is, is not going to be very useful anymore. But I could whisper or yeah. scratch. And she's associated that with a really positive reinforcement. And I think that's that's really good. And I think what people need to understand is that Food, a food reward, I, I'm like you and I don't use them in training at all um, because a food reward very quickly goes from positive reinforcement to negative punishment when it's poorly timed. So pretty quickly, if I'm not fast enough, if my timing isn't good enough and the horse tries a response or makes a little bit of a response, maybe I didn't catch it and I don't give it the food, I'm now withholding food. Mm. And was going to get frustrated and confused. Mm. And so that makes sense, actually. That see, that's puts together, connects some dots for me because a lot of times those, um, what we are thinking of as spoiled behavior is really just frustration. Mm. Doesn't understand why, why do I get it sometimes and why don't I? And, you know, I'm like, I, I have nothing against the positive reinforcement trainers and the clicker trainers. And I think it has some great usefulness. I just don't think it's in the training of a riding horse. And it can so easily be done incorrectly. That's yeah. really the big problem, Yeah, like you said. But I think we need to look a bit more at behavior, because that was quite interesting what you just said there, not with a riding horse. Because I look at some of those, if you just go onto YouTube and look at some of the Liberty horses on there, if you look at the horse's behavior, the tail swishing, the head tossing, the ear pinning, if my riding horse was doing that, I'd be off that horse in a flash and go, what on earth have I done? Yeah. Whereas on the ground, people seem to worry a lot less about those responses, but the horse is still. Well, I've noticed that, that with um, certain so-called natural horsemanship techniques. And I've often said, if I'm doing groundwork with a horse and he's pinning his ears mm -hmm. at me and posturing, mm -hmm. um, I've done something wrong, yeah. in my opinion. So it's actually the opposite response I'm shooting for. So again, people tend to see what they want to believe and believe what they want to believe. Yeah, and I think that that comes back to what you were saying about eBark is that the questions are really objective. So we never ask you whether your horse enjoys round pen work. We just ask you whether you do it. You don't ask, does your horse like jumping? Not right on the scale of 10, loves it, <laughs> hates it. Now, tell us more about eBark. Tell us what eBark is 
and then let people know how all they can yeah, utilize yeah. it. Great, great. So EBARC is a citizen science project. It's the equine behavior assessment and research questionnaire. We've currently got, I think, close to 7,000 records in there. It will take you about 20 minutes to complete an EBARC the first time you do it. And so if you go along to e-barq.com, we'll put, put in that in the notes. show notes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Go along there and then you can have a look on that homepage of the most recent research. It's got a list of um, papers that have been published about it. We've had some quite interesting findings with eBark. We're, we wanted to know, for example, whether a horse has a number of different riders. Does that make it less responsive? And we found, in fact, it did. Um, we wanted to know if horses behaved differently if they had males or female riders. And we found there were a couple of differences there too. An interesting one that you often hear is that mares are more difficult. Yeah, they go into season and more difficult to ride and that sort of thing. So quite early on with EBARC, we did a study looking at the difference between mares and geldings. And we, we did another survey with that where we asked people just to tell us a bit about um, mares and geldings. And we asked them to um, ascribe these adjectives to mares and geldings, like willing, unwilling, you know, good, bad, um, easy, difficult, those sorts of things. And the geldings got all the good stuff. Right? And the mares got all the terrible stuff. Aww. Yeah, it was really sad. Anyway, so we did an EBARC study to see if any of this was true. And we couldn't find any differences between mares and geldings under saddle at all. The only differences we found was that geldings were more likely to chew on lead ropes and rugs and this on the ground, and mares were more likely to be difficult to catch. Huh. The chewing might just be a stallion-y, you know, mm -hmm. playing with things, with them be a bit more oral fixated. And the, the being difficult to catch might well be something also herd-related that, that dates back from when they're in the wild mm. being moved by the stallion or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. And eBark is really there to sort of dispel myths like that because once you say a, a mare is difficult or bad-tempered or moody or whatever it is that we're bossy, all these things, it changes the way you approach that horse when you walk into the training session or the ride or whatever it is you're doing if you're making assumptions about the horse. Absolutely. Yeah, so that was quite interesting. And anyway, go along to the ebark.com page and then there's a button on there. You can press that to take ebark now. Now, what we're going to ask you to do is set up a an account. So you need your email address to do that. Please remember all the data is de-identified. Nobody can ever find out anybody's name or anybody's horse's name. It's all de-identified. It's stored very securely at the university. All we're interested in is your horse's behavior. So we go, we, we ask a lot of um, sort of demographic questions. We ask questions about where you're from, how long you've been riding, what your experience is, what sort of disciplines you ride in. We ask demographic questions about the horse, the horse's breed, size, um, if it's a gelding, when it was gelded. And, you know, often we don't have this information and there's always a button there to say I don't have that information. The, then the survey breaks up between ridden and unridden horses. So we ask you if your horse has been ridden in the last six months. If it has, we send you down the ridden questions. And if it hasn't, we send you down the non-ridden questions. Basically the same sorts of questions. And at the end, when you're finished, we calculate your results of your horse divided into 13 different categories, trainability, rideability, 
compliance, um, written compliance, ground compliance, independence, easy to stop for going, anyway, 13 different categories. And we give you a graph that is housed on your dashboard and you've always got access to that. So what you could do is you can look at that graph and you can say, oh my gosh, my horse is really lacking in boldness, for example. You know, perhaps your horse shies a lot or something, really lacking in boldness. So I'm going to go away and work on that. I'm going to try and work on exercises that are going to help make my horse more confident and braver. And I'm going to come back in six months and I'm going to take an e-bark again and your results will be added to your previous graph. So you can see changes in your horse. So you benchmark today and then you can go off six months later and update and see how you're progressing. So it's free to use, which I think is great. Um, and it is, as I say, a citizen science project. So if you're interested in horse behavior, if you want to be a part of a really big worldwide project, please do go along and you can enter all your horses or your mules, not donkeys. We're going to develop a donkey bark at some stage, but I'm not yet. I'd be interested in hearing sometime, we'll have to save it for another episode, but I've always been a little bit fascinated by mules and have trained a few, and I just find them intriguing and and the differences in their behavior and their origins and all that is kind of interesting. So I'd love to hear more about that. And I really appreciate you being willing to sit for an interview for the podcast today. It's been an honor to have you at my ranch. We've had a lot of fun all week and you guys are going to love the project we've been working on and more about that later. But for sure, I think you've shared a lot today, Dr. Finner, that will help listeners understand their own horses better and, and hopefully just help them have a greater understanding of horses in general. I know you've given me quite a few things to think about. I've written down a whole page of things I want to look into a little bit more. As a perpetual student of horses myself, I can't wait to interview again and hear more about all this stuff and the research you're involved with. Now, can you just tell listeners where they can find out more about your work and also about Can Do Equine? Sure. Well, eBark is the best place to find out about my research. And um, my site is Can Do, that's K for Kate, A N D O equine.com. And um, there's a free workshop on there. You can go along and have a look at that. There's, um, there's a blog and there's, I've got a sort of 30-day uh, video training series that you can sign up for for free. And there's all sorts of things on there. So go along to candoequine.com and have a look at that and make contact with me. That'd be super. Sounds like a lot of great resources there and a lot of stuff you're giving away, which is awesome, helps horses and people everywhere. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, I just want to thank you very much for having me for the last few days. And I'm really excited about our course that's coming out. Yep, yep. Can't resist to tease that just a little bit. It's a pretty comprehensive seven-part series all about the canner, riding the canner, training the canner from the biomechanics of the gate all the way through how you ride, how you cue, collection, developing more control, right up to flying lead changes. So we've had a busy week working on, on it, and the horses are going to enjoy their well-deserved rest this weekend. So uh, thank you again, Kate, for being on the show today, and we look forward to doing this again. Thanks, Julie.
And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. Each month, we pick a few unique questions from our listeners and answer them on the air. So if you'd like to submit a question for What the Hey, just message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Before we get started, I'd like to welcome my dear friend and assistant trainer back to the show, uh, T. Cody. You might remember her from when she was a guest on the show last year. And this time she's joined me right here in the studio. In fact, uh, she just sat in on the interview with Dr. Finner. So T, welcome back to the podcast. And tell me, what'd you think of that interview with Dr. Finner? Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It was really interesting to sit in and listen to you and Dr. Fenner talk. Uh, I had a hundred questions pop in my head, but I had to be quiet because we were sitting in the studio. And unfortunately, that was actually the last day of Dr. Fenner's stay here. So I have a bunch of questions saved up for the next time I bump into her, which hopefully is going to be next week. Well, we're definitely going to have her back on the show, and she might not be right here at the ranch to sit in the studio with us, but we'll have a chance to pepper her with questions again, I'm sure. So this time uh, for our What the Hay segment, T. Cody has a question of her own, and um, since Rank hath its privileges, she just decided to jump right to the front of the line. So T., what can I help you with today? Thank you for letting me jump to the front of the line, Julie. I appreciate that. This issue just happened. And in an effort to be succinct, I've written it down. So I'm going to read the question to you. A dear friend who is an experienced lifelong rider recently came off her horse when he bucked. Luckily, she's okay. No serious injuries. She's just a little sore. But she does have a broken heart. She's taking this very personally because he doesn't buck with anyone else and she thinks she's doing something wrong. She regularly rides five days a week, a lesson each week with her dressage trainer, and then she hacks out around her farm. She grew up riding, eventing. She rode for her college equestrian team. She's a good rider. She's a kind and gentle rider, and she and this horse get along very well. She's worked really hard to build their relationship slowly and correctly, and she finds most all of her rides fun and rewarding. He has bucked twice before with her in the arena, but she didn't come off. Each time, she says, it's as he steps off into the trot, and she describes it as more of a jumping straight in the air like a deer rather than bucking. For this particular time, it was a little cooler in the morning and she was heading out on the trail. He seemed pretty excited, so as per normal, she was going to trot him out to work off the energy. And uh, he did his hop in the air, but this time it came with a spin and she came off. Now you always recommend the first thing people do is check their horse's physical fitness. So about him, he has regular chiropractic adjustments every 10 weeks. Uh, Lately, he has started Adequan shots for a sore pelvis, um, but it should not be an issue for her riding him. Um, She gives him some special stretching sessions to address this issue. Both her dressage and jumping saddle have been fitted by her saddle fitter. So her trainer, who saw both of the previous arena bucks, says he just looks cold back to her. That's a term that gets thrown out often. What are your thoughts on what's happening and how to work it out? Of course, it's always difficult to diagnose issues with horses. 
without actually seeing it in person. I know you know this horse and rider quite well. So it seems like a little bit of an anomaly, this this bucking. But first of all, let's talk terminology here. When a horse jumps straight up from the center of his back and all four feet come off the ground, that's called crow hopping. And when a horse jumps up and kicks out, that's bucking. And it is a minor distinction, and people often use the term bucking to refer to a horse that's crow hopping because maybe they don't know the term crow hopping, or it just felt funny, so they assumed it was a buck. Now, in general, therefore, crow hopping is easier to ride. Okay, so let's talk about cold back. Cold back is an old, old term, meaning it's a term that's been in usage for who knows how long, certainly long before my lifetime. And it refers to a horse that either it hasn't been saddled or ridden in a long time, or it has not been cantered in a long time. It's way more common when you ask that horse to canter than trot. But some cold-backed horses will sort of bow up in a crow hoppy type movement when you first saddle him. But if you, let's say I haven't saddled this horse in a month and I go to saddle him, he gets a little crow hoppy with me, but I ride him the subsequent days and it doesn't happen again. So it's often related to that first time saddling. You might have a mildly cold backed horse that you, you just have to saddle real slowly, walk him out a little bit, let him kind of adjust themselves. It's almost, I've always sort of thought of it as a is a way a horse is chiropractically adjusting himself uh, in reaction to the saddle or in reaction to the feel of the weight of the rider on his back or in reaction to oftentimes it's when you first ask that horse to canter, either the first time you ask him to canter every day you ride him and then he doesn't do it subsequently or I haven't asked him to canter in a while and the first time I ask him he does it but he doesn't do it after that. So we commonly refer to these types of behaviors as cold-backed. Now, oftentimes, it seems like more often than not, these are really good, well-behaved, well-trained horses that I remember one of the best horses I ever had when I was a kid. Well, it was definitely the best horse I had as a kid. Uh, He was cold-backed. And if he hadn't been ridden in a while, there'd be just a little bit of crow hopping. Maybe when you first put the saddle on, maybe the first time you asked him to canter, and that was it. So sometimes the very best horses are occasionally displaying this behavior. And so that's why the, I think the term cold back just came from that, you know, the fact that it's otherwise a really good horse. It just has to get sort of used to the saddle every time, or used to the way of the rider every time. Now, generally, we walk these horses out. We take our time warming them up. But... A a friend of mine who is a vet and an equine chiropractic, in fact, her entire veterinary practice is just equine chiropractic, and she told me she does not believe cold-backed is a thing. She believes a horse being described as cold-backed has a physical problem and that it's likely a chiropractic problem and that it's likely it could be adjusted out. And, And, you know, in her mind, of course, she's a healer, that she thinks that horse can be helped through chiropractic treatment or stretches and all that. Well, this horse is already getting that, although it doesn't sound like it's necessarily for the quote-unquote cold-backed behavior. 
But what I would suggest is getting an x-ray of this horse's back just in an abundance of caution because obviously it's had plenty of veterinary treatment and chiropractic treatment and all of that. So I would be curious to look at an x-ray of the horse's back and see is, is there something going on there. Now, when you describe this to me, I just, I automatically think physical. It's a physical problem because when you have a well-trained horse and a really good rider and everything's going great and something just out of the blue like this happens, it doesn't fit, right? So if the horse, she'd been having trouble with the horse all along, if, you know, whatever, the horse had a history of, you know, challenging behavior and all that. So whenever there's just some, something that doesn't fit to me, I think physical problems. So I still would lean towards getting an x-ray of the back. But let's say uh, we did look at an x-ray and everything's fine. Can we rule out, I don't, I wouldn't really call this a training problem because, uh, by the way, so this is the third time he's crow hopped with her and this time he's spun and crow. Crow hop is not hard to ride. So she's that good a rider and she's a venting and all that kind of stuff. I would expect her to stay on a horse on a crow hop. But the spin caught her off guard, I guess, and she hit the ground. So that's the third incident. What kind of time frame are we looking at from the first time to the last time? And how long has she actually owned this horse and been riding it? And how many other riders are we talking about? Well, she's had this horse for six months. And the incidents of the crow hopping have been a little bit spread out within the last couple months. He, previous to that, was in training uh, with a dressage trainer for periods of time and ridden by his owner uh, in the past year. So he's had, he's had basically two years under saddle. I will mention one thing that we do know about him is at the beginning of this two-year riding, consistent riding period, he was kind of pulled out of the pasture that he'd been resting for a, for a while of this four-year-old year and went to a cowboy trainer to kind of put his first 30 days back on. And in that time, he lived in a stall 24-7, and the cowboy trainer said that he would buck on cold mornings when he pulled him out. But, you know, he was in a stall 24-7. So that's a little extra information there. The So if, if I rule out a physical problem, and I'm just thinking training, um, and certainly you know, being kept in a stall and any kind of confinement is certainly going to add to the horse's angst when he comes out of it. Also, hacking out first thing in the morning, maybe it's a little bit cooler day. All of those are perfectly good reasons why a horse, you know, I, I always liked it growing up in Florida when the horses felt fresh in the morning because it's so hot there, the humidity, and they come out of their stall and they're already soaking wet and sweat. Uh, and then on those nice, cold, early mornings, the horses would feel like they had more energy and maybe a little crow hoppy. And I always loved that because the horses had more energy in an innocent sort of way. And it's interesting that this horse hasn't really bucked with anyone else and that it's been occurring just in the last couple of months, these th three episodes. So that's a little bit concerning to me. If the trainer has witnessed it and felt like the horse in both instances was being quote unquote cold backed, 
to me, that means that the horse just went right back to work and it was as if it never happened. And that's certainly, that's the common thing about being cold back is it's just a momentary little blip. The horse crow hops a little bit. It seems to adjust his back or adjust the saddle to his back and then everything's fine. So, so then all of a sudden he adds a spin to it. So there's, where did that come from? That's not normal cold back stuff. I feel like if this was happening out of pain, intermittent pain, that there might be more indications of it. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like it happens and then he's just going right back to work like nothing happened. Of course, she came off this time. Did she get back on and ride the horse? Unfortunately, he turned around and headed home without her. (laughs) So she did not get back on that moment, but she said that she has gotten on this whole week and gone through her riding as normal. She had her dressage lesson and there has not been an issue. Well, hopefully she'll be a little bit more careful. Here, Here's what I would recommend. I'd still recommend an x-ray of the horse's back, just in an abundance of caution. And then she's going to have to be a little bit more proactive in warming this horse up and um, knowing that if she goes out first thing in the morning, he might be a little fresh. So keep his neck bent, you know, move him laterally from side to side a lot, Uh, move his neck, bend him from side to side, walk him in a circle left, a circle right, help him warm up in ways that warm up his body and back in particular, stretch down low, and uh, ride a little bit more proactively, maybe, when she get heads out of the arena. And then, you know, tell the chiropractic, who, who's ever doing her chiropractic work, obviously, what's been going on, and just pay a little closer attention. But otherwise, I think she's got a horse that when he feels a little bit of fresh, he's, he's maybe uh, humping up a little bit, and she's just going to have to learn to ride through that. I... I'm sad that she's taking things personally because that's not going to help her and it doesn't help the horse either. He didn't mean anything by it. He just did what horses do. And when she came off, it probably scared him. And he ran back to the barn because he ran back to safety. I hate it when people take things personally, like, oh, my horse ran off and left me. That's just a horse being a horse and it's unreasonable to expect. Yeah. Will some horses stand there? Yeah. Cause they're not maybe afraid and they, they're just shocked you came off. So they turn around like, what are you doing down there? But this horse must've been af- afraid. So he ran home and, uh, but she shouldn't take it personally. She should uh, do her best to figure things out, do her best diagnostics on this horse physically and medically, and then just ride proactively, a little more warm up. Um, understand that as time goes on, she'll have a better idea of what conditions lead to this kind of thing and either we're going to find resolution to it or just be more more proactive and on guard for it. Thanks for all that information, Julie. It really helped to explore all of the different areas that you think could have caused this. So good information. Thank you. Okay, so our next question is from Sue and it says, Hi, Julie. I love your podcast and all the resources you provide people of all skill levels. I hope you're able to help me with an issue I'm having with my four-year-old quarter horse mare. I bought her in April 2022, and she came to me with 90 days of training through a university training program. 
She has a great temperament and breeding, and I'm taking weekly lessons with a trainer so we can teach her Western pleasure buttons like spur stops and more. I took her to a few fun shows this past summer, and while waiting in the warm-up pen for our next class, she dropped to the sandy ground and rolled while I was in the saddle. This scared me, as you might imagine. It was a super hot day, and I figured she was just done and thought the sand looked cool and comfy. Well, she's done it five more times since then. Every time when I was in a sandy arena or sandy shoreline was one exception when we were on grass. But it was a hot, sunny day, and I think she was hot and tired. I'm afraid she's developed a terrible habit, and I wondered if you could help in fixing it. It happened again today in our arena, which just got a new sandy footing. When it happens, it's so sudden that I forget to do what I've learned to do, which is raise one rein high and kick her. Do you have any suggestions for me? How do I get my reflexes fast enough? Is it too late to train this habit out of her? I appreciate your guidance. Thank you, Sue. Thanks for the question, Sue, and thanks for those kind comments. Well, is it too late to train this habit out of her? It's already a habit, and unfortunately, it sounds like it's been reinforced at least four out of the five times. So you, you're you a long way um, from breaking the habit. Let's just talk about this to begin with in general. It is not at all uncommon for a saddle horse to, given a certain set of circumstances, to just sort of spontaneously lay down a roll. Common examples, horse has been in a muddy uh, place or a place with hard footing and you bring him into an arena full of clean, dry sand. He hasn't had a comfortable place to roll in a long, long time and his desire just overwhelms him and he drops to the ground without thinking because, you know, it's like imagine you were lost in the desert, had no water, and all of a sudden you came upon a oasis and you just plunged into the water. So that can happen. It's just their desire overwhelms them. An another time, let's say you're out on the trail and you get a little rain and then the sun pops out and your horse's hair coat starts drying and he gets itchy. And then he sees a spot of sand that would be perfect for scratching his itch. And he drops to the ground. Seen horses lay down in water when you're crossing water. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, on occasion, a horse might get struck with a real serious bout of uh, stomach pain and just drop down. But generally, it's going to be a greener horse, a younger horse that's just overwhelmed with desire because of the circumstance. And without thinking, he drops down. Now, usually there's going to be some kind of indication that the horse is about to roll. Like he puts his nose down to the ground, starts sniffing the ground. He'll start pawing with a front foot, actually kind of scratching the dirt, circling. All these things are indications the horse is thinking about rolling. But sometimes they just buckle at the knees and go straight down and it takes you off guard. If that happened to me, first of all, I know there are certain circumstances where this is far more likely to happen, like I just described. We know that when you come upon dry, sandy places or rolling spots out on the trail or something, you know your horses might be thinking about it. I would be more proactive. But what's critical is that the very first time that horse that's saddled and or being ridden drops down to roll 
that you hop off that horse and start screaming and flapping and kicking and make the biggest ordeal out of it. Just, I'll just be yelling, screaming, stomping, you know, using whatever I have to a rope, whatever, so that he knows that is absolutely wrong and bad, 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 bad thing to do. And if, if you do that the first time, it's unlikely the horse will ever do it again. And remember, most riding horses do not do this. One reason why is some of them have never even thought of it. But the ones that have thought of it and went down, they probably got scolded and immediately brought back up. And in that process, they learn, oh, I should never do that again. That was a bad thing to do. Now, your horse has taken you off guard to the point where no correction was made for that behavior. And in fact, instead, the horse got a nice little break, got a nice little roll, the rider got off. So in that way, from the horse's point of view, she was actually rewarded for this behavior. So now you have a habit. Now, can you train it out of her? Absolutely. I'd probably train it out of her the very first time. And I would be prepared. I would understand the circumstances which were going to lead to her doing it. And as soon as I had any indication she was thinking about laying down, I would just start raining on her parade, hooping and hollering, slapping, kick her right up to a trot, make her trot, make a really big deal out of it. If she went all the way down before I was able to do anything, you know, same thing, start screaming, stomping, waving, flapping, anything I could do, uh, make a lot of noise and let her know that it's it's wrong and bad and she can't do that. I think if you're prepared and you make a big enough fuss about it, she will get the idea that it's bad. Up until now, I don't think anybody has explained to her that that's bad and wrong behavior. So yes, you can break this habit. You're going to have to be a little bit more Johnny on the spot. You're going to have to have more awareness of what leads up to this and your horse's behavior and be prepared to just rain down on this horse in a loud and busy way. Um, so it's a very, it's an unpleasant experience. And of course, you know that I don't mean hurt her in any way. I mean, you know, put a lot of pressure, loud, uh, chaotic kind of pressure and, and in a scolding way that lets her know that you believe that behavior to be bad. She thinks it's perfectly good behavior, obviously. So you need to let her know that you think it's bad. Also, just, you know, kind of being an advocate for the horse. Let's make sure this horse has good rolling places. Rolling is a really important behavior for horses. It's beneficial to them physically. It, it helps take care of their hair coat. There's so many reasons why it's important for a horse to have a nice place to roll. And that means a spot that has good, deep, soft sand, um, preferably. And if, if you don't, you might need to build such a place for your horse and or Bring your horse daily to a place where it is okay for him to roll. Obviously, I wouldn't do it in your training arena because you don't want to reinforce there. But uh, So make sure the horse does have a way to roll. If he's in a stall that has a hard floor, he probably doesn't roll in there because it's too hard. So uh, let's just make sure the horse has what he needs as well.
that's all we have time for today. I want to thank T. Cody for joining me on today's episode. And also, of course, incredible thanks and appreciation to Dr. Kate Finner. Be sure and check out her stuff in the show notes. Next month, I'll be back with another brand new episode. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and invite your equestrian friends to join us. Do you have a horse training question or issue you want me to talk about in an upcoming episode? To send your questions for What the Hay or any topic ideas that you have, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Ride On with Julie Goodnight is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review it. It sure means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners find the podcast. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Julie Goodnight to get even more training advice and updates. And head to my online training academy for tons of free training resources, memberships, online coaching with me, and more at juliegoodnight.com academy. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your upper level skills, I hope you found some helpful information to make your horse life better. Thanks again for your insightful comments and for the five-star ratings so that more horse lovers like you and me can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe and enjoy the ride. <laughs>